Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Book Pod with Corey Perkins the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This month the world celebrates International Women's Day, a celebration born at a time when women around the world were trying to force governments to give them the vote. The first Women's Day event was held in February 1909 in New York City, some 11 years before Congress ratified the 19th Amendment to legally guarantee American women the right to vote. The popularity of International Women's Day has waxed and waned over the past 100 years. Its messages of equality, inclusion, gender balance, safety for women, fairness for women, these all came to the fore once again during the feminist awakening of the late 60s and 70s. And in 2022, at a moment in history when the women of Ukraine and Russia are at war, the hashtag MeToo movement continues to build and the Australian federal government here at home grapples with the issues of sexism in the workplace, workplace safety, gender balance, sexual harassment and ridicule, discrimination and violence against women, International Women's Day is once again a lightning rod for debate and a beacon of hope and what might be possible. And so in this important month for women and with an election looming in Australia, it is a great privilege to welcome to the book pod today our guest, Jess Hill. Jess is an award-winning investigative reporter and author and the winner of the 2020 Stella Prize for her very powerful book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. Hello, Jess. It's lovely to have you on board. Hello, Corrie. It's good to be here. Hey, Jess, another reason for us having you here today is because uh, the latest quarterly essay a series published by Black Ink and Schwartz Media, a series that we really love here on the book pod. You have the latest quarterly essay and it's titled The Reckoning, How Hashtag MeToo is Changing Australia. Mm. It's, um, it's such an important read for anybody interested in tracking this global phenomenon and its impact on Australia over the past four or five years and also its capacity to create legislative and economic and cultural change 
since you completed the essay at the end of last year, Jess, I wondered, I mean, so much has happened in Australia, even in the past few weeks. A lot yeah. of what has happened is good and a lot of what's happened or indeed failed to happen is really bad. But mm. I thought, can we start today on the positive with the recommendations of uh, Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins via her report to federal parliament about its toxic work culture? I just wondered what your thoughts are about this. Uh, we understand it is an incredibly thorough, compelling and a game-changer report. Do you think it stands a chance of creating permanent change? Look, I think that there are reforms in that report and other reforms that, you know, Brittany Higgins has really been at the forefront of championing that have already and will continue to change culture in Parliament. I remember speaking to Catherine Murphy from The Guardian and she described the workplace um, in Parliament as something unlike anything else in Australia and said, you know, individual MPs, they run their offices like sun gods you know there's no oversight over what happens inside those offices they are the sort of last and final word that's what is being changed with these with these new reforms and and even just having an independent complaints process so you're not actually having to take your complaint about someone in the office to the person who runs that office you can go to someone independent I mean these all seem like no-brainers, and it's something the corporate world has been doing for decades and, you know, obviously not perfectly, otherwise we wouldn't have the respect at work inquiry. But what Catherine was saying is that, and, you know, having been in Parliament House working there for decades, she said basically that already that has totally changed the paradigm in Parliament House. She's had, you know, MPs coming up to her and, and talking about how they run their offices and wondering if they do it right, you know, even just having that sense of inquiry or just a, a modicum of self-doubt um, is, is quite a lot of progress. But as, as always with, with reforms, um, it, what it comes down to as well is the actual what repercussions are there for people who break the rules? What repercussions are there for people who are found to have sexually harassed? What kind of deterrent is there in place for MPs or ministers who don't respond adequately? And someone who really comes to mind for me is the Cabinet Minister, Simon Birmingham, who in his career in, in Parliament in the last few years particularly has actually been really willing to work with people and advocates to establish the sorts of reforms that would see massive changes to, for example, the university sector. In, in the quarterly essay, I talk about his office working closely with End Rape on Campus and other advocates, Fair Agenda, et cetera, to set up a university task force on sexual violence, basically to, to create some accountability mechanisms for universities investigating sexual assaults on campus or sexual harassment. And he was a very enthusiastic collaborator on that. And interestingly, when, when Turnbull was, uh, was deposed as Prime Minister and, and Morrison was installed, the, his portfolio changed and the man who inherited his portfolio um, as Education Minister was thoroughly uninterested in that and it never got off the ground. And, in fact, instead they championed Bettina Arndt and, and her whole, you know, look at whether the cancel culture was cancelling out freedom of speech at universities and that became their priority. 
So Simon Birmingham on paper looks like someone who really advocates for victims survivors of, of, of sexual assault. But then you go and read the testimony from Chelsea Potter, who was a staffer, who was who alleges that she was assaulted by a fellow staffer. And his response to her was the same response that we've seen from so many people in power, but particularly those in parliament, who, who have done the least possible to respond to the complainant until it becomes a media issue and then and then sort of make out as though that complainant didn't say what they had said. You know, I mean, all this kind of smoke and mirrors. And it comes back to what, you know, Peter Van Onselen said on Insiders, much to um, fellow panellist Annabelle Crabbe's shock and chagrin, um, which was, to paraphrase, essentially that he was, he was so glad to see this this outpouring of or this this reckoning with sexual assault and that we were finally taking it seriously but when it involves someone you know you know gosh it's hard and that's the crux of it that's the crux of it gosh when you know the person who is being alleged against is it hard for you to actually do what's right do you revert back to protecting a mate and, and, and blocking out the what the complainant is saying? Or is there some structure in place that, well, perhaps will actually remove that onus being on you in the first place and it going to someone independent, but where you actually have, there's a mechanism that you just go through so that those sorts of, you know, individual concerns and emotions don't get in the way of complainants actually getting justice um, or being treated humanely. So I think what, you know, all of that says, about parliament and what's happening there is that you need to get reforms better down into, into into practice that has to happen culture change is not adequate because cultures can change in every direction you know you don't just achieve culture change and then wipe your hands and walk away reforms obviously things can be unwound but it's a lot harder so what kate jenkins is doing i think is we're going to look back in in decades to come and see that she was one of the most crucial sex discrimination commissioners in Australia's history. She is like leaping on this moment. She knows it's a moment in time that has the potential for massive change. She knows if she doesn't jump on it, that it could just pass us all by. And she is jumping on it and she's doing it with incredible smarts and dedication. And I have a lot of faith in her abilities to get the sorts of changes that we need. But we're coming up against, you know, centuries, um, millennia of, of misogyny and victim blaming, and that's not just going to turn over overnight. Well, yet again, another very clever woman playing, not playing the game of the men, but thinking a, a way around it, a more of a circular thing. Julia Banks, the former MP in her book Power Play last year, I did an interview with her after that, Jess, and she was saying that although she welcomed the Kate Jennings inquiry or report into respected work and and what was what she was then currently Kate Jenkins was currently working on, she said that the respected work inquiry had been languishing on the desk of former Attorney General Christian Porter and Scott Morrison's desk forever, which is in fact you refer to this as well, which is really appalling. What does it mm. take, a big media story, to get that report off the desk and mm. then they commission another report, which is kind of confusing. But as I understand from your essay, Kate was actually rather clever when all of this 
went dormant, she actually contacted and made contact with workplaces, either being able to see them or actually holding a host of webinars to talk people through that. Mm. And I think we all, you and Julia Banks uh, and probably Kate as well, we all share this observation that that's what, what's happening in corporate Australia, which is so now in line, particularly with the US and the UK as a result of hashtag me too. What's happening in corporate Australia is so uh, so advanced of our own federal parliament. It's bizarre. Mm. Well, it is um, bizarre in one way, but when you think about what's happened since Me Too, corporates are heavily incentivized to deal with this properly, financially incentivized. You know, there's, I'm not sure how this works in Australia, but certainly uh, in the States, there's what's known as the Weinstein Clause in merger agreements now, uh, which I mentioned briefly in the essay, which essentially when two companies are looking to merge, what the company who's taking over is looking at is like, do you have any allegations of sexual harassment on the books? Because the financial penalty now for that is much higher and the reputational penalty, you know, remembering, you know, after after what happened with Weinstein, his parent, I think I can't remember exactly, but whether his parent company went bankrupt, but there was a it was a massive financial penalty to, to his company. And so that's what corporates in America know now is that you actually can't. You can't just sweep this under the carpet anymore because it will come back and bite you in the ass. So what you're um, saying is that their intentions are not always entirely prompted by some sort of altruistic goal to make the world a better place. Of course not. Of course not. That's not to say that there aren't fantastic people working inside these corporates who do have really good intentions and, and work really hard to get their co-workers across the line. I speak to corporations semi-regularly and I you know I, I have a lot of contact with the people who champion this inside those companies and they absolutely mean what they say the fact that they're getting the funding to do that is because the the risk calculation has changed and me too has changed that risk calculation now for Morrison as far as he could see last year the risk calculation for him was 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 hard to really measure because actually you know it's unprecedented at a federal level for women's issues to be a vote changer in a, in a significant way, in a way that might change the outcome of an election. Do you it think was, this will be, this moment in time? I think that it's impossible to draw a straight line between the failure of leadership on, on what happened last year particularly and to the, out, to the changing of a vote. But what we see is like a, a totally different landscape, like the a massive surge of female independence. Now, it may not be that those many of those independents end up getting elected. But, you know, I heard recently uh, an analyst commenting on, on what it's like to fight an election. And in those seats where the, where the independents have quite strong support, the government is having to, vote, to fight both Labor and the independents. So you're fighting on two fronts, not just one. So that already changes the nature of the campaign and what's required. Sometimes what we see is much more of a butterfly effect than a bomb, you know, and it's very hard to trace back to what caused this. Was it just this? Really, there's never just one cause. It's a collection of causes that, that you know, changes someone's votes or, you know, it might be that just it was the last straw for someone to see how Morrison responded last year and, and, and many of 
his ministers. But I think that, you know, it's worth remembering that when this, when the Brittany Higgins allegations, the Christian Porter allegations, the March for Justice was all at its height in February and March, polling, and it was voter polling that was that in these the small, in these age groups was a smaller sample. But amongst the samples that were done, it was 18, 18, well, young men, I think it was 18 to 35, might have been a smaller bracket, who increased their approval of Morrison during that time. So, and the male vote generally did not budge. The female vote did, but it rebounded. And it wasn't until, you know, the vaccination issue became um, a huge problem that, that the female vote tanked again. So I think if, if I were Morrison and I was just purely transactional, as he himself has described himself as, I would be looking at what is, does this matter to the electorate above and beyond, you know, their taxes and their negative gearing? And until recently, I might have thought, no, but clearly there's been some kind of internal polling <laughs> that has changed his mind because they were quite quick to jump on Kate Jenkins' report as very, you know, very marked difference to how they responded to respect at work, which they did just want to bury this landmark report that was commissioned by a coalition government, let's remember, not something they inherited from Labor or anything like that. So they jumped on it. They very quickly arranged um, one of the optics um, recommendations of the report, which was to apologise to people who've been harmed inside Parliament. They did that the day before Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins addressed the National Press Club. And in classic sort of Morrison form, managed to make what was supposed to again be like a sign to the electorate that we're listening, managed to turn that into a PR disaster by not putting any thought into actually inviting the people they were apologising to into the parliament. And but that, of course, you know, this is, the, this, is kind of, this is sort of the whole problem of it, isn't it? You know, because he doesn't get it personally on an empathetic level, he doesn't have the capacity to lead, to brief, to organise his own. He's a marketing expert, allegedly. That was his mm. previous profession. He should mm. be able to carry this off. And yet each time he moves into the sphere of, of, of women and all of the issues that the hashtag MeToo movement raises, he stumbles. I loved that quote that you have in your essay, Jess, of Catherine Murphy. You mentioned her before, who we just love. I am such a fan of The Guardian's political editor. And she says to you, let me share a basic insight about the Morrison government you might find useful. This Prime Minister speaks almost exclusively to one cohort of voters, men at risk of voting Labor. Mm. So it's not really about women <laughs> at, at all. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's the thing, and I think it's really important for, for us when we're considering these issues to try to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the people we're trying to understand, you know, and and, and instead of sort of, Think you know, going through all the, you know, shoulds, like he should care or he should pay attention or he should be a better leader, just look at who he is and what he does and, and what he values. You know, the fact is with Morrison, if we're looking at leadership, like the consistent criticism of his prime ministership is that he hasn't been a good leader in virtually any area. So it's not like he's been, you know, a fantastic prime minister on all the major issues, but women he just doesn't understand. 
He was a terrible leader during the bushfires. He had, you know, major issues during COVID. Basically, the the the, the vision of or the image of this prime minister to, to many in the in the electorate is that this is a man who doesn't show up. This is a man who who doesn't put himself on the line during hard times and and doesn't support the Australian people when they need it the most. Um, now, clearly, there are coalition voters who wouldn't think that, but. You just have to look at the his approval as prime minister, which has been tanking, and how unusual it is for an incumbent prime minister to lose approval like this, and for uh, the opposition to be almost ahead of him just before the election. It's really it's really unusual. So I, I mean, yes, Morrison does not understand women, particularly professional women. Malcolm Turnbull has, has spoken about that that Morrison was uncomfortable working with women. He was uncomfortable working with Kelly O'Dwyer when she was sort of his junior minister, his finance minister, when he was treasurer, wouldn't invite her to meetings that she was supposed to be at. Um, And then would just sort of feign that he'd forgotten. And maybe he had because she was just so outside of his zone of interest. He repeatedly in his speeches, he has appealed to the love of his family, the love of his wife, the love of his two daughters. And then, but, and use that as a way to extend as though that extends out to the women women of the greater Australian public. But I think it's just really clear that his wife and his daughter's women, he can understand. And the other women and their, and particularly their anger is something absolutely beyond his comprehension and beyond the comprehension, I think, of a lot of coalition ministers. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Earlier in the introduction, I said some good and bad things have happened in the past few weeks, and one of the more unpleasant slash interesting moments was watching the pile-on, particularly in social media, Twitter and so on, and a lot of male anger in particular, following Grace Tame's frowning face while meeting and greeting Scott Morrison and and his wife Jenny during the recent Australia Day celebrations. How do you interpret that? How do you interpret the pylon that occurred and Jenny's comment to uh, 60 Minutes a couple of weeks later about how she felt about that, it was really interesting to because for me that was like the world divide sort of moment. There were people who were mm. absolutely with Grace Tam and understood her anger and why she did it and then there mm. are those who, who still maintain that it was disrespectful or lacked courtesy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, we've seen quite a lot of that same reaction to Greta Thunberg when she's like stood up at Davos uh, or any of those sort of summits and and said to all these quite comfortable leaders, "How dare you?" And she's she's suffered quite a lot of that same backlash. I think particularly, and I'm not, I, I don't want to generalize because there's a lot of people who um, are not from this class who, who may have felt uncomfortable with, with what Grace and that. there'll be lots of different reasons that people have for feeling uncomfortable about it. But there is a comfortable class of people for whom there's not much at stake with these issues. And I mean that in terms, they, they believe that to be true of climate change, to be true of women's issues. They're comfortable of a middle class and it not much touches the sides. It's like all these issues are one of interest. And I'm not saying that everyone in the middle to upper class feels like this. I'm just saying there's a class of comfortable people for whom there doesn't seem to be much at stake. And I noticed that type of thing, like, why can't you just be polite? Why can't you just put aside your feelings for a moment and do what's required of you? 
which of course to Grace was incredibly offensive because that's exactly what was required of her um, from her own perpetrator. I have to tell you, Jess, your, your retelling of her story of the abuse that she suffered in, under the watch of, of this predatory, awful teacher is so compelling. We've heard Grace tell the story, but actually with the distance of a bit of time and, and in the hands of a professional journalist who crafts the words so beautifully and in a way you kind of take the emotion out, you just tell us what happened. I was very emotional when I was reading that part of the essay. For those of us who have daughters, for those of us who have been in situations not dissimilar to that or where we have felt threatened, mm. your interpretation of what Grace went through is very powerful reading. And you're right, we have to remind ourselves constantly that she that's how she became fell into the position that she did because she was trying to be the good girl. No, oh, that's how so many do. And I have to say, I mean, I I saw Grace tell that story for the first time. We were both speaking at an, at an event, I think it was last year, at the, at, early in the year. This was before she'd really become quite politicised. And I was stunned. She is such a powerful orator. Her public speaking channels something that is hard to put words to when you're in the room you feel like you can't it's like you don't want to breathe to interrupt what you're listening to and it's not just because she's retelling her trauma this is a person who is bringing what's at stake right into your eardrums and your eyeballs you know it's very uncomfortable for people it feels risky you know there are women and particularly i think older women who their whole lives have been socialised to know at their core that they can never show how they truly feel, that they have to play the game if they're going to get ahead. And that that game is a man's game primarily, but it's also a patriarchal man's game. And what Grace and Greta and so many other young activists are doing is rejecting that and rejecting the politics of civility and respectability which is not to say that they are eschewing respect. Let's remember, Grace was there to fulfil her formal duties. For four or five months, she had been calling out the Prime Minister and calling out various ministers, making it very plain how she feels about the government and doing so through, like, the the lens of not just her trauma, but also the trauma of so many other women who've been through Parliament, like Brittany Higgins and others. The, the idea that she would go to the lodge and smile and make nice, well, that would just be hypocritical, right? And do you know what? Grace would have been called out for hypocrisy if she'd done that. So I think Grace was actually in a no-win situation there. She is someone who does who absolutely wears how she is feeling on her sleeve. And what a relief to see that. But also she she turned up because she respects the office of the Australian of the Year. She and yeah, worked, she worked exactly. hard on the organization's behalf and she was genuinely honored to have been awarded it, stunned, and she was upholding all of its values. Yeah, she and this idea that she's like visiting the house of the Prime Minister, for goodness sake, it's the lodge. It's not their personal home. No, it's, a tax pay, personal it's a taxpayer run. Exactly right. Just the, the coverage over the past 12 months of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, 
individual experiences, but they have this sort of connected mission now of creating a safer and fair environments for women. It's, and they have really prompted us as a community to take note and think about these issues and the issues that you raise in your essay. Why do you think these two remarkable young women have been able to cut through the noise where so many others haven't? You mentioned Grace has this incredible charisma as a public speaker, and I have to say Brittany Higgins is no slouch in this area either. You know, if you were political parties, you'd be doing everything darned as power to try and get them elected and onto your side, I would have thought. But why have they been able to cut through and others have had a bit more of a tough time? Well... The Australian of the Year position conveys a lot of power. That, that, that invests the individual with a lot of power to begin with. You know, Rosie Batty set, I think, a, a new standard for being Australian of the Year in 2015. She spoke hundreds of times that year. And, it can backfire and, for you, though, Adam Goods, for example. Oh, 100%. And, and it's not to say that it hasn't backfired for Grace, She's achieved enormous things, particularly in getting people to recognise how grooming affects children and not just the incident of violence or um, abuse. But she has also been in the emergency room for post-traumatic stress and, and for being, you know, triggered into traumatic states. And as she said to me, I think I printed this in the essay, you know, she's constantly on the edge of a shame state. And she's had to manage that while being the centre of national attention. So it, it has had its own type of backfire, but as a, I think on the whole, Grace is is very glad to have been Australian of the Year and what she's been able to achieve and what she will continue to achieve going on with her foundation. But I think that the reason they've cut through is like many fold. So it's the, the, the investiture of power in the Australian of the Year position. Brittany Higgins' story coming at this, at this, the, the idea of being raped inside parliament, allegedly, And the fact that the institution betrayed her so flagrantly, it was, I think that all that had been built up since, particularly since 2017, but we're we're talking about, I mean, really we're talking about decades, but in terms of the really concentrated period of Me Too, it was like there was this just pile of straw and Brittany Higgins was the match, you know? So, and, and she's also been very judicious about how much she speaks in public. So when she speaks, it feels like almost a rare event and people really hang on her, her every word. And because, as you say, she's, she's also a very charismatic speaker and she is a, a really impressive intellect. Her women's March speech was amazing. But, you know, there are other reasons why they've cut through and not to be crass or anything, but the two of them are very nice to look at. Like, and... There is a a lot of talk, and deservedly so, about the types of, you know, ideal victim survivors that get media attention. So not only are Grace and Brittany very attractive, obviously, they're white, able-bodied, although Grace has a disability being autistic, but they basically present as media, like to be totally disconnected from their work, as media products that people want to consume. That's a horrible way to, to describe someone, and I'm certainly not describing them like that. But when you just look at it from the totally disembodied perspective of media, that's partly how they've cut through. And there's I think been a lot also, of don't you, It's it's been a bit of an aligning of the stars. Never in my lifetime as a journalist, which is over 30 years, have I had so many women commentators who 
I don't think about them being women anymore. It's just Laura Tingle or Sam Maiden or Catherine Murphy who's talking to you every day or every night. But it is remarkable how these women who are around about my vintage are Mm. suddenly so connected to these issues. Well, that's another reason why Grace and Brittany have broken through because of the determination of those press gallery reporters to keep this story going and to tell it in a way that's totally uncompromising. Were Brittany and Grace to have come into, say, a press gallery of 10 years ago, maybe they wouldn't have broken through. Well, I can't see Laurie Oakes giving them much time and attention 10 or 15 years ago, to be honest. No offence. Who knows? I mean, yeah, I mean, who knows? But I think that it became personal for female reporters, not to say that that clouded judgment or, or, or did anything to misdirect their reporting, but it became clear, I think, to several of those reporters that now was the time to really jump on this. And I think the, the, the big lesson for all of Australia, but particularly the press gallery, was what happened to Gillard. And it's been a fascination of mine, particularly since a strong female lead came out on SBS about the treatment of Gillard and the horrific misogyny directed at her, quite blatant misogyny, that, you know, even though some of the press gallery reporters that you've just mentioned called it out at the time, they didn't, as as Catherine Murphy, you know, um, described to me, they didn't lean into it sufficiently, you know, and it was hard for them to see it for what it was without and lean into it without being seen as partisan or as being supportive of Gillard. It's like there was no textbook for how to do this properly. Mm. But, you know, but even um, even uh, in one of those uh, docos, Penny Wong, who, you know, is an, is an ALP senator, even she has expressed her regret that she didn't lean in harder, that she didn't yeah. sort of pick it up, call it out, do something with it. And That's right. And it is difficult to apportion blame, isn't it? Because we've all been in this situation over the past 20 years when we haven't kind of known how oh. do you go about it? How do you call no. it out? And it's not about blame as such, but having some introspection about it and not repeating the same mistake. And I think that, you know, every every one of those press gallery reporters is going to have a different understanding of what happened in the Gillard era and a different sense of, of the role they played in it and what they're doing now. But certainly, you know, Catherine's sense of it was that she just couldn't actually believe that the misogyny was that overt and that there was a strategy behind it. It was sort of like she couldn't quite believe what she was seeing because as far as she was concerned, she was in her position as a result of the gains made by feminism and that a lot of those gains, if not, if not, you know, obviously she wasn't under the illusion that gender equality had been won, but that it was, it was definitely in train and, and moving towards progress. So when all this was happening to Gillard, it was, she said, actually, just personally, she wasn't really able to integrate it enough to really lean into it. Well, as you um, say in I'm, your essay, you know, big social change is a long yeah. process and it's not certainly not just at this moment, at this time, a narrative that Scott Morrison or the next government's going to be able to fix. As you say, it's kind of two steps forward, one step back, and sometimes mm. We, the women, these are my words, not yours, but sometimes it's the women who often we we show reticence as well for whatever reasons they may be. It might be work-related or it might be personally related. It's Sometimes it's hard for women to call out, but 
one of the great things about the Me Too movement is it's kind of given us a it's given us a, a, a bit of a roadmap and and a, and a bit of encouragement to come forward. The, your essay, The Reckoning, is is about this movement since 2017, October 2017, and the impact that it has had in Australia. Tell us about the catalyst for this. Where did it all begin in the States and how, how quickly? I mean, I couldn't believe how quickly we were talking about it, and I thank social media in part for that, but how did it kind of spread so quickly to this very willing audience here in Australia? Well, I mean... I talk about in the essay that, you know, Me Too wasn't delivered by a stalk, you know, it didn't just sort of drop out of the sky and that there were arguably, I mean, gosh, you can, it's hard to put a pin in exactly when this started to brew, but um, but I talk about there being a real quite clear 20-year lead, about 15, yeah, 15 year lead up to Me Too. And I think starting quite powerfully with the Catholic Church and what happened with the allegations of child sexual abuse against priests becoming confirmed, but then also being connected to the power. So being connected to the Vatican and being connected to the senior priesthood and the organisation. It was the first time that we had really grappled with the idea that men in power, men invested with responsibility and authority could be capable of not just committing heinous and sadistic sexual violence, but protecting those who do it. That was a real paradigm shift. And then, you know, not to go into detail, but over those ne- those ensuing years and, and, the, and the Boston Globe spotlight investigation was really the first in the early 2000s to, to expose that. And then as time went on and we started to get the, especially, especially Jimmy Savile, very, you know, much loved celebrity with just, you know, every possible powerful connection you could imagine having sexually abused and raped hundreds of people, including, you know, hospital patients, the most vile and horrific career of abuse you could possibly imagine, again, protected by various institutions. You know, it was like the ground was getting, was being readied for us to believe victims when they come forward and say, this powerful person abused me. Because before it was a reflexive disbelief. No powerful person would do that. They wouldn't risk what they have just to do that. They could have sex with anyone. Why would they do that to you? So by the time Me Too launched as a viral hashtag, that ground was so sodden that it was like pouring just like, you know, one more day of rain onto sodden ground and it just flooded. And the wines, and, you know, obviously the election of Trump, the pussy grabber in chief, someone who may have been elected not just in spite of that video uh, or that tape, but because of it, because of his naked patriarchal, you know, inclinations, because of his racism, because of his greed. By that stage, women and men and some men too, obviously, were Furious. at a point of rage. You know, they're at a point of rage. So when Weinstein, that Weinstein story finally hit, and that career of harassment and abuse and, and blackmail finally got told in all of its gory details and all of the institutions that had protected him, it was just like people were ready to blow. And so when Alyssa Milano posted that tweet, which was, you know, basically some friend had suggested that if all the women who'd been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we could give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. 
it went bananas and it was the beginning of a massive social outpouring. Now, pretty quickly on the on the heels of that, you know, you have Tarana Burke in New York waking up to seeing the tagline that she has been using for 10 years by that point as a grassroots organiser against sexual violence with particular focus on young girls of colour. She was horrified. And so it's like catching fire all over the world. Women are and women and some men are posting disclosures of horrific things that have happened to them. Suddenly this, like, it's like the top of a bottle of cork and a champagne's come out and it's just an explosion. Tarana Burke's sitting there going, this is a disaster. You can't have all these people just making these disclosures online. It's so unsafe. What's going to happen to them? And what's going to happen to my movement? There was a coming together, fortunately, much to Tarana Burke's great credit, she was able to sort of rein it back in, associate the Milano-Weinstein version of Me Too that had taken off back to her original grassroots campaign. Milano acknowledged that, you know, there was, and and slowly and in fits and starts, the media has acknowledged Tarana Burke as the original founder of Me Too. But the, the thing is, Tarana Burke founded a very different type of Me Too than the Me Too that went viral online. And in fact, the Me Too that went viral online and, and what happened as a result of that and the, the kind of the, the rage that was stirred up even further by that hashtag and the sense of, you know, wanting retribution and wanting to out individuals is actually quite contrary to how Tarana Burke sees advocacy working. But in a strange way, her Me Too campaign was little known before 2017, except in the in the communities that she organised in. It is now of world renown and it gives the Me Too hashtag movement a soul and it lands it and grounds it in advocacy and expertise instead of it just being a Hollywood thing, you know, something that started in Hollywood. I think if it had just been something that started in Hollywood and it didn't get connected back to Tarana Burke, and her very intelligent organising, it would have probably petered out. So these are the sorts of kind of happy accidents in a way that change the world. And then here in Australia, you know, there have been all these kind of connect dot connectors. You have some really lovely conversations in the book with Shana Bremner, mm. founder of End Rape on Campus Australia, talking about the that closed environment of universities. And I think she says to universities are very much run by networks of old boys. And certainly this takes me back to the 1990s when Helen Garner's The First Stone appeared on our bookshelves. It was a remarkable book in so many ways and, you know, putting Helen's own views about what was happening at Ormond College to one side, it reminded us that even universities where we send our young kids are not necessarily safe places. And then, of course, what's come out at high court level, with Dyson Hayden and then, of course, you know, you, you mentioned entertainment and the judiciary are two areas in Australia where there, it's been kind of absolutely ripe, this power. Mm. It does make you wonder where there is a, whether there's a particular personality that's drawn to the law or acting that or showbiz that kind of creates this power thing in the head and I'd throw in there also federal parliament. But it is... Um, it's one... Yeah, it's just, it is just so interesting to see, you know, how it's kind of morphed here and, and, and become such a such an important movement here in Australia, bringing in all the different strands of 
organisations and different people. I wonder, can you see change? Can you see see that we're taking steps in the right direction? Yeah, I can. I think about the sorts of discussions that Australia has been having on that national level really since 2014 and or really I mean really taking it back to 2012 around the the murder of Jill Ma I think it's been about a decade of us having a constant and and deepening conversation about power about violence about how power corrupts and how the perpetrators are, are protected, but also about the nature of what it is to be a victim survivor, to go through that experience, what it creates in the aftermath, and giving investing a lot more power and expertise in victim survivors, which has particularly happened since, since Rosie Batty and since Chanel Miller, who was otherwise known as I think her name was Emily Doe when she was, or, or the Stanford rape victim. That was until she came out and put her actual name to her experience. The, these were women who had such power of articulation and such such a clear understanding of how systems work and how systems suppress the voices of victim survivors, and such a powerful way of delivering it that they they held the attention of people and they changed their perspectives on victim survivors that has created the ground for victim survivors like Grace Tame like Brittany Higgins like Chelsea Potter like Chanel Condos like Danya Mani you know the list goes on like Tessa Sullivan to finally be taken seriously and to be believed and to, and to be looked at not just for their story, but to be asked for ideas and, and opinions on what should be done next. That's a totally different world that we are living in compared to 10 years ago. And also, so, Jess, can I just say too, a, a book such as yours, See What You Made Me Do, which came out in 2020, and as I said earlier, won the very prestigious Stella Prize and a worthy winner too. You made yourself, of course, very accessible, and thank you for that, to all sorts of different organisations. You were speaking, you were being interviewed about it. The Stella Prize is a, is a wonderful opportunity to shine a light on Australian women writers, and we thank them so much for that. Again, you know, you contributed to the debate as well. Can you tell me the, the, what, what sort of impact that winning that award had, not only on you as a professional writer, but also on this particular topic that you cover in the book, which is violence against women? What, what sort of an impact it had? Gigantic. It turned, it certainly turned my book from one that would have possibly, con, you know, continued to attract interest from various people who are already interested in this subject to something that was of national interest. It, it relaunched it. I mean, I got mainstream reviews in places that had never reviewed the book when it first came out. I remember Booktopia like contacted me and apologised for not really not seeing that it was going to be the kind of book that would require that sort of support and, and almost did it belatedly, you know, after, after the Stella Prize. And fair enough, and I'm not trying to shame them. Like I, I think that all along there's been an underestimation of how much people want to understand and read about abuse. And it, it's like this 
it's from editors, from marketers, from publishers, just have not kind of sort of couldn't imagine that people would actually choose to read about this. But again and again, you see when newspapers run campaigns or, you know, you see television specials on this, the readership and the audience is like, you know, stratospheric. When we adapted See What You Made Me Do into an SBS series with Northern Pictures, it broke records for their, you know, it was for their factual programming. It was so like there's such an audience for this. And I think what the Stella Prize did was it said to readers out there, don't worry, this is not just having to eat your vegetables. This is actually a really good book and one that you might find interesting even if you had never thought to read about this subject. And it, and it even gave some comfort to victim survivors who'd been nervous to read it thought, well, now it's won the Stella Prize. Now I I sort of feel like, wow, this is really something I should try. I should just try it because it's it's sort of got this endorsement. I think that's what really comes through is that it's not like a a tour on Misery Row. Like you actually come out feeling this sense of camaraderie with the the people that you're reading about. And I think it unpicked, you know, really not not for the first time, but in a in a significant way. For me personally, it like it's it totally changed my life. Obviously, financially, for writers to win a prize like that, it, it's it is life changing. I had become very poor writing that book, and uh, and was in quite a lot of debt with a very young child, and it was pretty scary actually. So, Jess, uh, I feel like I could talk to you for you know another hour and a half, and that still <laughs> would not be long enough. But I'd really wanted to thank you for coming on the book pod today, and I commend Thanks. to everybody listening not only Jess's Stella Prize winning book see what you made me do power control and domestic abuse but also the quarterly essay which came out in november and really since we've all been back from summer holidays gosh this this topic just won't go away the number of stories relating to this particular federal parliament level the reckoning how me too is changing australia it's a really worthwhile quarterly essay to to read and i as i said i commend it to everyone jess thanks so much for your time today Thanks so much, Corey. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.